hey, I, I'm honored I get to fill in for Brooks this week, so I get to play shortstop and, and fill in the gap, so that's kind of cool. But uh, we're in the book of Ruth, and so if you take your Bibles, uh, whether paper or electronic, whichever one you use, uh, I'm still in the paper mode, and uh, just open up to the book of Ruth. Brooks has done a great job of walking us through uh, that story so far, but let's just give a little background uh, so that we are uh, up to speed if you're here for the first time this morning. So the book of Ruth is a story about a family. A man named Elimelech uh, has a wife, Naomi. There's a famine in the land of Israel, and they uh, take off out of Israel, and they go east and south to a country called Moab. Moab is not a good country uh, for them to go to. It's often warned in Scripture for Israel not to be involved with the Moabites. And uh, it would be similar to our understanding of a, a Christian launching into the world. Right? It's kind of the picture. But they go because circumstances are dire and they get over there. And uh, they take their two sons with them, Malin, Malin and Chilion. And uh, when they get there... Um, what we find out is that some circumstances happen. So uh, somewhere in the process, the boys take two Moabite wives uh, as, as their wives, and that is the equivalent of a Christian marrying a non-Christian. And uh, that's always looked on very poorly in Scripture. Uh, you, you need to know Jesus doesn't approve of that. And um, so, But they did. And then somewhere in there, Elimelech dies. And about 10 years later, the two boys also die. So phenomenal family tragedy. Uh, Ruth is stripped. Uh, she, she hears that uh, there's, the Lord has blessed again in Israel, that there's actually uh, food again. And so uh, she heads back home uh, empty, uh, bitter, devastated, and alone, except for her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Ruth, her daughter-in-law, has returned with her mother-in-law, Naomi, to Bethlehem in Israel, and has found favor um, with the cousin of Naomi's named Boaz, who has been providing food for them to survive, and then also protection for Ruth as she works in the fields, in his fields, gleaning uh, wheat for her and Naomi to live on. So that's where we are in the story so far. We're going to read chapter 3 together, and then we'll go into the story. So let's pray this morning, and then we'll... Read chapter 3. Father, thank you for this story. It is every, it's an amazing thing to think this story was written about 8,000 years ago and it's still read. That's quite an author. And Lord, we give you credit for being able to create great stories. And uh, we're going to walk through this, pick through some of the things this morning that stand out in this chapter uh, that just are natural uh, progression of where we've gone in the story so far. And as we do that, recognize that some of these points are going to connect with us. Probably not all the same point, but I would bet all of us are going to get something out of one of the points. And so this morning, we have worshipped, we've, we've sung to you, it was really good, and uh, we pray for Zach in a special way because we know he really wanted to let loose with the last two Sundays before they and he and Ellie go to Eastern Washington, and now his voice is shot. So we pray a, a better grace on him uh, for that. But then... Lord, uh, when it comes to the message side, we want this to be a place where you tabernacle with us, where you have the right to speak to us and highlight something. It might not even be anything that has to do with the message, 
But somebody heard from you this morning. That's what we're really after. So we open the service to you. Uh, We ask that you would be with your word, in your word, and about your word. And so we give that to you in your name. Amen. All right, so let's take Ruth chapter 3. Follow along. I'm reading in the ESV version in case your wording's a little differently, but it reads like this. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, the her is Ruth. Naomi said to Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For my fellow townsmen all know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. And so she laid his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment that you were wearing and hold it out. And so she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did it fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, before, will not rest, but will settle, settle the matter today. All right, so having read that, let's go back to the beginning, pick up the first few verses, and start into the story. It says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not, rest, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose your young women were, in other words, with the women you were working with in his field. That's language we don't really use here. Naomi is doing, uh, when she does this, she's doing more than matchmaking. Now, when you read it, doesn't that remind you of Fiddler on the Roof, right, and the matchmaker kind of thing? It, It kind of falls into that category. But she's doing more here. She's looking out for Ruth's welfare. She's realizing, man, we're widows. We've got nothing. I'm old. If I die, Ruth is by herself. She's incredibly vulnerable as a Moabitess. I've got to do something to ensure that she'll be taken care of. And so she instigates this plan. And uh, she says, haven't you recognized Boaz? Now, um, 
Brooks brought out this whole idea of the kinsman redeemer last week. And uh, and I want to take a look at that because it plays into this uh, pretty significantly. So when you're talking about the role of the kinsman redeemer, the first one uh, that Brooks mentioned last week is that he's the avenger of blood. Uh, these were grouped by family, they were grouped by clan, they were grouped by tribes. And so if someone was unjustly murdered uh, in the tribe, one of the people who was closest to him was anointed the kinsman redeemer. He would go and uh, hunt that person down and kill them. Right Now, that's very different than today, right? But I think all of us know what a spirit of vengeance is like if something evil's happened, how we want justice done and how we want it work. So we can relate to that point. But that's what one of the roles of the kinsman redeemer. But the other roles were these. As the redeemer, there were a couple different ways it could play out. So, for example, if a redeemer had a uh, close relative, we would call them cousins, uh, who uh, had uh, had became poor, he lost his land or he had to sell his land, the redeemer could look and say, hey, you know what? I don't want you in that position. You can't even raise crops anymore. In an agricultural society, you don't live if you can't raise crops unless you've got a trade. And so the Redeemer could come and uh, purchase the land back. All right. Uh, The second way was that uh, if the person had to sell themselves into slavery. They became so poor, what we would call destitute street people, uh, like we see today. If they became so poor that they had to sell themselves into slavery, kind of the only way you could stay alive is to put yourself underneath a master or a benefactor who you may not have a lot of rights, but you could still live. And so someone would sell themselves as a slave. The Redeemer would come and say, you know what, I, I, I don't want to see you as a slave. I'm going to purchase you back and set you free. So that's another role the Redeemer could play. But the third role that the Redeemer could play is in Israel, the land was perpetually the Lord's. And each family that was given plots of land, when the 12 tribes came in for to conquer the land, they were all given sections that each tribe owned. And within those sections that the tribe owned, the clans and the families all broke out and the land was to be perpetually theirs. So land couldn't really be sold permanently Uh, other than it could be sold until the year of Jubilee. The Jubilee was every 50 years. At the 50-year mark, all the land reverted back to the former owners. And so if you bought land, you bought it in regards to the years of Jubilee that were left. So like if you bought the land and there were 40 years until Jubilee, you'd pay more for the land than if you bought the land and it was only five years to Jubilee. Does that make sense? And then at 50 years, it all reverted back to the family. Now, where this didn't work very well is if there was a family where the husband was killed and there were no children, there was no inheritance to pass it on to, and so the family couldn't perpetuate itself. So in those circumstances, in the Old Testament, the closest of kin was to raise up children for that family so that the line and the family name and the land could go on uh, in perpetuation. Now, that's very weird to us. Right? That would be like if your brother-in-law died, you would go make love to your sister-in-law so she could have children so the family line could go on. That's what that's saying. And we go, uh, uh, yeah, very different. All right? But you have to understand, I was talking to my Jewish rabbi friend, and he said, man, it's about survival. Yeah, right? And the Lord was working with them as a nation, and there were things that we don't understand today, and this is one of them. And so that was one of the roles of the kinsman redeemer was to raise up children for the dead brother so that the name and inheritance could go on. Now, 
This was especially true for a brother, but the book of Ruth makes it clear that this would also be a close relative. That's what we find out in the story so far. So let's go back. We start, here's the plan and here's the risk. Naomi says, see, she is winnowing bar- he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. And you ask yourself, how did Naomi know that Boaz was going to be at the threshing floor at that spot at that time? Folks, it's a small town. Okay, You don't need cell phones in a small town. I remember growing up and I'd walk in my mom and say, hey, so-and-so is going here and this is that. And I'd go, how do you know all this stuff? Right? There is just the grapevine in small towns and uh, people know. Right? And they look out the window like, oh, that's what's going on. And this is what Naomi's doing. So she's telling Ruth, look, he's going to be winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So wash, anoint yourself, put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. And then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. I want to suggest to you, this is high drama. Okay? This is major stuff right here. This is like what we would call today a soap opera. This is like what we'd call a romance novel. There's a lot of stuff perking here all of a sudden. Naomi, the mother-in-law, comes up with a plan, and Ruth hears the plan. And she lays out the plan for how Ruth should respond. Now, a couple things. Yes, there have been a few indicators of Boaz's favor towards both Ruth and Naomi. Uh, We picked that up. As Brooke said last week, there seemed to be some cordial interplay. Um, But we weren't there to watch the body language or the tone that things were said in. So we don't really know exactly how much was just formal exchange and how much was innuendo and interest, right? If you can watch a couple, you go, oh, there's not much there. Or you watch a couple and go, oh, that's sparking, right? You catch their eye, you catch the body posture, right? Guys at school, you watch a couple, yeah, that's on, right? That's what we say. And you pick it up by watching, right? What does that look for? (laughs) Are you not with me? Come on. There we go. My buddy's over there. And uh, they don't like being pointed out. And so... But this is so we're not exactly sure how much of this is. But I want to suggest it's it's really high drama. And note, she's to put effort into it. Here's a principle: when you know the Lord's will, and let's say God tells you something, and you know it's going to happen, that doesn't mean you can just sit there and you don't have to do anything. Often it means that you have to get more involved than you were before you knew what the Lord wanted you to do. Notice she didn't just wash in. It says that. Uh, basically Naomi told her to wash up, perfume yourself, make yourself look as attractive as possible. Okay, she didn't just walk in and say, hey, it's God's will, so you've got to take me whether I'm smelly or not. All right? That, uh, that approach doesn't work really well, even today. Right? There's, there's the idea of you can sweeten the deal, right? And you can um, salt the oats a little bit, which means you can make it work in your favor. And Naomi tells Ruth, Okay, look, make yourself look the best you can. Now, think about this. That's not that easy to do because they have nothing. They're poor. They're wi- so I, many scholars doubt she even had best clothes. But she probably took the one she had and made them look as best as she could. Right? So she put effort in it. But even with that, right, by any measure, this is a bold step. This is an out there flyer step. 
This is fraught with both possibility and peril. It's risky. Think about this. If it backfires, she not only loses the possibility of the relationship with Boaz, which there's some semblance of something perking there, but of also being redeemed, and potentially even Naomi and Ruth's status in the community uh, could be lost. Uh, you know, have you ever done one of those where you thought something was happening, you thought the other person thought what you thought was happening was the same thing you thought was happening, so you go and talk to them, and they're like, are you kidding me? Right? Can you imagine if Ruth goes and asks Boaz, and, uh, and, and she gets rebuffed and ridiculed? You think I'm interested in you? I mean, a Moabite? Seriously? I don't think so. Right? That, that's all playing in here. So this is not really simple. Notice that Naomi, by extension, Ruth, are wise. What does she tell them? Go at night. Okay? Don't do it in front of other people. You know, if you think about uh, engagements, uh, this would be similar to what we would understand as engagement. Most engagements happen in private. Right? Some engagements happen in front of a whole group, but nobody but nobody wants to be that guy or gal, like on the Hallmark shows, right, where there's 80 people in the room, they kneel down, and then the girl says no, and be that guy. Nobody wants to be that guy, and no girl would want to be in front of uh, a bunch of people and the guy going, nah, right? That, that dog don't hunt, okay? And so people do not, so as a result, we do those kind of things usually privately, usually when? At night. So likewise, Naomi says here, go at night, all right? And so Ruth heads off, she takes off, and goes at night. And I want to suggest something here that I think is really important. Um, Ruth, once again, exhibits tremendous submission and tremendous faith. We saw that in the beginning when she refused to not go at Naomi. Naomi tried to push her away, tell her to go back to her own land. She wouldn't do it. And she stayed. We saw that. You know, Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. We saw that she's now doing again because she says this. All that you say... I will do. Ruth models the mindset and the spirit of a true believer. Because that is to be our attitude towards the Lord Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit when he comes and asks us something to do. It should be the mindset and the submission of all that you say I will do. This reminds me of Israel in the desert when Moses had spent time up on the mountain. Do you remember that story that the mountain at Mount Sinai was quaking with thunder and fire and smoke and clouds and uh, stuff was banging and trumpets were blaring. And, and the people looked at that and said, you know what, we think we'll stay here. Moses, you go talk to him. That sounds like a really good idea to us. And so he did. Moses went up on the mountain and he got what we know as the Ten Commandments and the laws and brought them down. It says, then Moses sat down and read uh, the laws to the people. This is in Exodus 24. And it says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's what it means to say, yes, Lord Jesus. Not Jesus as a church, not Jesus as a faith, not Jesus as, um, you know, somebody else has talked to me about him, but Jesus as Lord and Savior. Jesus as uh, 
authority? The answer is supposed to be yes, Lord. Right? And Ruth models that. And I think uh, in one of the clearest examples in all of Scripture, she models that all that you say, I will do. A true believer in Jesus Christ has resolved the authority issue and understands submission. And to the level that we don't understand the authority issue and we don't understand submission is to the level that we will struggle in faith. Many, many people have rejected people to Jesus today, not because they don't think he's real, but they just don't like him telling them what to do. It's not cool. It's not popular. I don't fit in at school. I don't fit in at the community. That would be odd. I'm not going to do that. But I think you're a great guy, Jesus. That's not what this means. And Ruth's modeling something that I think is really important for us. Now, we're not given insight into Ruth's inner thoughts. Wouldn't it be something if you could just open a little door in her brain and read the script of what she was thinking at this moment? I mean, was she thinking, is Naomi nuts? Is she thinking, uh, okay, sure. Is she thinking, wow, what an awesome plan. Uh, we, we aren't given any clue. Um, but we, we know that it was uh, an incredible risk and that it was significant because there was potentially a lot to lose. That's why they call them steps of faith. But in that, she agrees to the plan. Now, as we all know, it's one thing to agree to a plan. It's another thing uh, to step up by faith and actually do it. And the question on the table right now is, will she follow through? Is it just words? Or will she, uh, and and she's going to chicken out due to nerves or fear? You ever done that? The Lord wanted you to do something and you had every intention to do it but you got shook or rattled, lost confidence, and bailed out right at the last minute? And then yeah, later you're like, why didn't I do what I was supposed to do? That's the question here. Which way is Ruth going to go? And the next verse lets us know. It says here, setting the scene, so it says she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. Ruth took action. By the way, when we're given steps of faith, the Lord expects us to take action as well. Ruth goes to the threshing floor under the cover of night. Uh, She knows the way well, uh, right? She's been working in the fields. She sat there at the threshing floor and had lunch um, with the workers and with Boaz himself. So she knew where it was in that. A threshing floor is just a flat piece of land that was pounded down hard like we call polished earth sort of effect and the winds would come off the Mediterranean in the afternoon and they would take and throw the wheat or the barley up in the air the wind would catch blow the chaff off and the wheat or barley would fall back down into a pile and that would be the harvest and so Ruth knew where that was because she knew where the fields were and so she goes there at night and um, notice that she comes at it advantageously she doesn't just stroll in and go hey Boaz where are you right she stops, listens to her mother-in-law, says, watches the setup, looks for where, is there anybody else around? Where's Boaz actually at? Then she waited. And she waited for Boaz to fall asleep. Here's something else I want to point out to you that may have not caught your attention in the story. Notice that when Ruth goes to the threshing floor, teenagers, this is a big one for you. When she goes to the threshing floor, she goes alone. 
No one's with her. Naomi's not with her. Uh, the other workers in the field aren't with her. Nobody else in the community is with her. She has to take this step alone. And I want to point that out because often when we're called to steps of faith, we want to Shanghai somebody else with us into that vision step. If the Lord speaks to us, we want to pull in a couple friends and say, let us go do this together. But the Lord did not speak to us. The Lord spoke to you. I remember one uh, time we went down a missions trip to Mexico and one of the young guys really was literally spoken to by the Lord that he was to be a missionary. And he came back and said, Steve, can I share in the youth group? And I said, absolutely, that's fabulous. Let's go out and grab a burger and a shake and let's sit down, we'll walk through it and you can share on Sunday. And as we sat down to um, walk through what he was going to say, he was really angry. And I looked at all his notes and his, his notes are really angry. And he's kind of like yelling at other students in his notes uh, how they've got to be missionaries and how they've got to take the Lord seriously and, and how um, they have to leave everything and go for Jesus. And I paused him and I said, hey, can I ask you a question? He goes, well, yeah, what? Because he was just rolling, right? I mean, he's, he's at full tempo now. I said, can, can I just ask you a question? He goes, what? I said, when you went down to Mexico, did the Lord call the whole group or did he call you? And he just, uh, well, he called me. And I said, well, it sounds like you want him to speak to the entire group the way that he's talked to you. He goes, oh. I said, the best I know, he didn't talk to anybody else about that. He talked to you. So the question is, are you going to take those steps? Because I told him, no one else is going with you. You're going to have to do that on your own. And he had to reweigh the message, and it was a powerful message, but he had to wrestle for three days. What did that mean that he would have to take those steps alone? Now, today he's been a missionary all over the planet. Incredible story. But don't you often, when something's scary, you want to take someone else with you instead of take that step of faith? Ruth models something here I think is really important. Our faith steps are just that. Our faith steps. The Lord didn't talk to everybody else about them. He talked to you about them. And usually, you're going to have to do that alone. It's an added bonus or blessing if others come with you in it and they're called to the same thing. No one can do them for us. That's why people, they're called what? Faith steps. <laughs> right? You've never had these? Hello. Looking at me like, you know, just quit talking about this, huh? No, they're called faith steps, right? They require obedience and action, not just mental assent. Second point says, when Boaz had eaten and drunk, his heart was merry. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Uh, I mentioned the threshing floor is just a flat place. There was a pile of, of wheat in this case, or barley uh, at this time he was doing. And um, so Boaz had worked a whole day. And, and I think Brooks made a great point last week uh, about the value of hard work and that Boaz liked to work hard. How do we know this? How, how does this show up? Well, it was unusual for a man of Boaz's status and stature 
to be doing manual labor. Usually they came around, they would greet people, but they were just checking to make sure they could, we were conserving their gains, that everything was good yet. And the harvest was being done, the workers are doing what they're supposed to do. It was very unusual for the owner to come down and participate in that. But we find that Boaz is doing that, and, uh, and he did it all day until the end of the day. I don't know if you've ever done farm work like that, but it is exhausting, cool, hard, terrible, wonderful work all at the same time. And if you've lifted wheat like that all day, you've lifted several tons of barley or wheat, and you're exhausted. And so what we find is that uh, Boaz works that day. He worked all day to the end of the day, and then uh, it says that he ate and drank. The insinuation here is the wine. And, you know, when you do that, and lay down, you sleep really well, okay? Like Kalunk. This verse just brought back uh, tremendous memories, uh, really warm memories of my growing up on a farm in Wisconsin. So in Wisconsin, it would have been oats instead of wheat, uh, but the same process uh, is used for that. And we would be uh, doing that after a hard day work. Usually what they do is you'd sit by the the oats truck or the tractor, and there'd be the, the pile and uh, they'd bring out food, and a lot of times you'd have like ice water or lemonade, and I mean it was awesome. And next thing you know, you lean against that pile, and it's just the ultimate comfort pillow, because it just contours to your body, right? So you just lay back and clunk, and you are out sawing z's. And uh, of course, the older guys would always laugh at the young kids doing that, but uh, that was just uh, a great memory. Same true of baling hay or or laying out on the grass. Boaz is a happy and content man. He's a man of the soil. He's a farmer, uh, and it was a good harvest. And remember, this is after years of drought. So now there's suddenly abundance. There's actually food again. So there's a good crop, a good harvest. He is grateful, he is tired, and he is sound asleep. Okay? Sawing some logs. And now the plot really thickens. It says this, Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Notice she doesn't just barge in, okay? Okay, ladies, take a cue from this, grace. Notice it says she came softly. Scripture says a soft word can break the bone, and Ruth models this. She comes in softly, and she's looking to see where Boaz is. And this is where the story also gets really tricky. Um, uh, The frank and honest question is, at this point, is this a chase situation or is this a sexual situation? Is there hanky-panky going on here? Or is this being done on the up and up? Uh, I knew of this contra- controversy long before Brooks asked if I would cover chapter 3. So he came to me and said, Hey, by the way, Steve, the retreat's on that date. And could you, would you cover? Phil? Oh, yeah, by the way, you get chapter 3. Thanks, Brooks. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And here's why it's, uh, it's a controversy. So I have a, a good friend named Matt Rosenberg. He is a Jewish Messianic rabbi. Messianic means he's a believer in Jesus, all right? A Jew who's come to believe in Jesus as Savior. And he pastors a congregation down in Seattle, uh, right by Northwest Hospital, uh, called Resurrection, or Restoration, sorry. And uh, it's a Messianic congregation. And he's in our, our Mill Creek Network together. So I went and one of the meetings and said, hey, Matt, you're Jewish, right? He goes, yeah. You know, he's got his big black beard, the whole thing. looks totally. And uh, I said, dude, I got I to gotta speak on Ruth. So give me the skinny on chapter three. Ha, ha, okay. So we go and meet at Chick-fil-A for breakfast. And uh, 
I said, you got anything on that? He says, oh, yeah. It, it turns out he has done some of his dissertations on that. And so uh, we were talking, and he, he actually gave me the, the Hebrew commentary. So here's the Hebrew commentary on Ruth. Fascinating reading. Uh, it, we read right, uh, left to right. This goes right to left, so you actually do the book backwards, right? And you go this way with it. And why that's important is that they highlight some things that um, other commentaries don't. And here's what you need to know. So the Hebrew words for lie down, uncover, and for feet carry some pretty strong sexual connotations uh, in this story. Let's look at those really quickly. Uh, Lie down. You can see the Hebrew word there. Uh, They don't use the vowels. And so... um, I don't even know how to pronounce it. But usually, lie down refers to an illicit sexual encounter. And he lay down with her. You read that in the Bible a lot. Um, The example used here is the example of Lot and his daughters. Now, if you remember that story, the story is uh, God's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot flees with his family. Wife turns around, becomes a pillar of salt. Daughter and dad flee to a town, then flee to the mountains. The daughters don't see any men. And they go, you know what? We're going to die up here. We've got to have children. So let's get our dad drunk. We'll make sex with him and then we'll have babies. Yeah, it's a pretty crooked story. Right out of the Bible. Okay? They both get pregnant. The oldest daughter named her son Moab. So when she laid down this word with her father, she gets pregnant, conceives a son, names him Moab. He becomes the head of the Moabites. What's the connection there? Ruth is a... Moabitus. Ruth comes from that. So this word is tied to that situation is now being used exactly the same way in this situation with uh, Ruth and Boaz. The word uncover is a Hebrew word gillet. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. But it uh, can mean uh, to reveal or also nakedness. So often like when uh, Boaz laid down, often they just throw a blanket or a tarp over them. Uh, because the grain pile provided the warmth as you laid down on it. And uh, so it says he came and lifted the cover uh, uh, of his feet. Uh, What it's saying there is it can also be mean uh, to uncover one's nakedness. Similar in the implications when Ham, the son of Canaan, went into the tent and saw Noah's nakedness, right? And it said that his brothers realized what had happened, so they took a, a... a blanket and walked backwards and covered their dad. All right, and so this has that same. That's the same word uh, used there. And then feet. For feet, you have the words um, margalot, and the, and for foot, then would be regal. Does can mean uncovering feet, but it can also mean uncovering the genitals. In other words, the lower half of the body, not just the feet. Uh, the Jewish commentary gives numerous connections to the places where these two words are connected. Now, what are we saying? At the very least, the use of these terms and in this context makes the situation highly suggestive and sexually charged. Right? This is like uh, reading the tabloids at the store. Right? This is so-and-so did this with so-and-so, did this with so-and-so kind of thing. That's what's being charged here. Now, although this is true, and these words are that, it's also true that they do not necessarily have to mean that. 
So the problem is there's huge ambiguity here as to what was really going on. At best, it is highly suggestive in the original language. So I asked Matt, what do you think? And he said, yeah, I think they did. And I said, oh, okay. And he said, a lot of Jewish scholars do. Some Jewish scholars don't. My take on the situation is um, that they did not, but they easily could have. You ever been in one of those situations where a lot's happening and it could, but it didn't go there? That's what I think happened. Let's move on and I'll show you why. So here's the great reveal. No pun intended. All right. At midnight, the man was startled, turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Notice that Ruth continues to step out in faith here because what Naomi told her is that Boaz would tell her what to do, but here Ruth is actually telling Boaz what to do. It's, it's a flip on, on the request. A Moabite woman requesting a favor from her Israelite master and no little request at that. Redeem the land and by the way, redeem me too. That, it's an incredible ask. It reminds me so much of another woman and another step of faith found in a story in the New Testament. Uh, this one is one of my all-time favorite Bible stories. It's found in Matthew 15. And the story is Jesus and his disciples. Things are getting really hot in Israel, really hot in Jerusalem. The Pharisees are pressing. So Jesus takes his disciples. They go outside uh, over to Tyre and Sidon, which is uh, what we would know as Samaria. They go along the Mediterranean coast trying to get away from the press, so to speak. And once they get there, uh, here's what happens. It says, When they withdrew, from the district of, withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. We have no idea how she knew of Jesus. doesn't give us any backdrop to how did this woman become aware of who Jesus was and that he could help her. But she comes out crying out. She did learn, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. We don't know if they were walking and long together or in a place seated, and she came up on the situation. But Jesus doesn't answer a word. She's driving the disciples nuts. They come to Jesus, and uh, uh, they beg him, saying, Look, send her away. She's crying out after us. In other words, she's not sitting and saying, Hey, Jesus, my daughter's really messed up. She's got a demon and is trying to kill her. Could you do something? She's at the top of her voice in Middle Eastern style. They wail, Lord, please help my daughter. Probably way louder than that. Ah! Right? And the disciples are like, Whoa, shut her down. Right? And, and she's continuing. And it says, And here's the incredible part. He answered, apparently within her hearing, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now this is cold. Okay? If you think your only picture of Jesus you got is Jesus meek and mild, and he always answers with a holy radiant glow, he's cold here. I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. You're not from them. I don't need to do anything. But she came and she knelt before him. So she broke through the disciples, came and knelt before him, gets right in his face and says, Lord, help me. And he says this, it is not right to show you how cold this is. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Right? Now, to understand that term dogs, you have to understand that 
Jewish people called Gentiles dogs. That's how they viewed them. They were the chosen people. Everybody else outside of that was dogs. Right? And Jesus, in this story, takes and flips that term. And he says, it isn't right to give the children's bread to dogs. He's calling her a dog. He's going, who do you think you are to invoke on the promises of God? And this woman comes up with not only one of the, probably, in my opinion, one of the top two responses in the Bible, not just the Bible in the history of the world. Okay, She comes up with the most incredible response. She says this, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. How did she come up with that? I mean, usually in me, when I'm under pressure, I think of the right answer 20 minutes later. Anybody else like that? Like, oh, if I would have just, oh, why didn't I, doggone it, that would have been so killer, right? But it's over and done and gone. How did this woman, under that kind of pressure, with that kind of strength, getting rebuked to her face, come up with this incredibly brilliant response? And you know it was brilliant. Because Jesus looked at her and he says, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And it says her daughter was healed instantly. Both requests from two Gentile women and both kinsmen redeemers respond positively because Jesus is the ultimate kinsman redeemer. Boaz is a foreshadowing, an, an archetype of who Jesus would be when he came. All right, we go on in the text. Jackpot! You ever do a word? Yes! Boom! Right? It just hit and you're going, oh, this is awesome! Here's how it goes. He said... May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For my fellow townsmen, know that you are a worthy woman. From this, we can infer a couple things. Number one, uh, Brooks pointed out last week that Boaz is single. We knew that. Number two, now we discover that he's older. We don't know how much older, but he may be significantly older than Ruth. How do we know that? Because he says, you did not go after young men, whether rich or poor. You went after me. Insinuation there is I'm a lot older. That is an amazing kindness. And so Boaz is obviously flattered. Uh, Boaz is strongly motivated. What does he say? All that you ask, I will carry out. I'm going to do it. Uh, Gal's key here for talking to the men in your life, um, you want your man to be motivated? Talk to him with honor. Okay? He will get motivated. Men respond to honor really well. And Ruth is like, yes! Okay, now I, I'm from the guy's side, so I'm going, yes, bullseye, booyah! Things rocking, right? Now that's not how a gal would say it. A gal would go, oh, how nice. It's working. Okay? <laughs> right? I don't know how to do it. All right? I'm lost. So just give me grace. But the idea is that this is awesome. This is fantastic. God said he'd do it. I went and took the step of faith. Boom, it worked right out. This, this is just how the textbook's supposed to work, right? What could possibly go wrong? Now, those of us who've read the Bible enough and lived life enough know that the path of faith is seldom a straight line between A, B, C, and D. There's some detours in there. Often you start out with A heading towards B and then you wind up at J. And then you take a hook curve to R. And then you come back around uh, and you end up at G and then you get to B and you're thinking, wow, that's just a B. What's going to happen to C, D, and E? 
right? Well, that's, that's what happens here. I call this, oops, I didn't see that coming. All right? Boaz says this, and now it's true that I am a redeemer. Yet there's an, a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. Can you imagine what kind of monkey wrench this threw into Ruth's gears? I Just sit there. You it, Think how much courage it took just to ratchet up to make the ask. You make the ask. The guy's favorable. And then he says, oh, by the way, there's another guy. Another what? There's another guy. There's an, another redeemer. He's, he's actually closer in line than I am. What? What do you, what do you another redeemer? Like, seriously? Like, who? Like, what? Like, really? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not looking for another redeemer. I just came and asked you. And Bo's going, yeah, but legally, that's not how it works. So we're going to have to check this out tomorrow. That just wasn't part of the bargain. And it totally changes everything. Now, here's the key point. How does it change everything? Here's how it changes everything. Ruth is being obedient to God. God has got a plan. She is operating in it. She is stepping towards it. And now there's this change that comes in. What's at stake there? What's at stake there is that Ruth has lost control. She didn't have control anymore. I mean, think about it. He says, notice it says lie down until morning. It doesn't say sleep here until morning. And the reason I think it doesn't say sleep is because do you think either of them slept a wink the rest of the night? I think they were sitting there running the scenarios through their head. What if this and what if that and how is this and that? Oh my goodness, what if that happens? I don't know what I'll do. And um, I think this illustrates another very important principle is that is... God's provision, while always there, does not equal equate to God's timing. You ever have God tell you something and you said, okay, great, it's going to happen, but the part you hadn't factored on was the timing? Right? Now Ruth is caught in this. I said, as I said, there's almost always some kind of hiccup, some kind of diversion, some kind of barrier, some kind of wall, some kind of seeming death of a promise before God comes through. You're going along in faith, and then something blows up, something falls out the bottom, something goes wrong. Like, I didn't have a category for this. Do you think Ruth had a category for another redeemer? Why didn't Naomi say something? Highly likely Naomi didn't know either. All right? Or she probably would have. Why does that happen? Well, it's designed to test two things, our character and our motive. What are we in it for and why are we doing what we're doing? Not what we're doing, but why are we doing what we're doing? Uh, Think of Joseph. He had dreams that he would rule his family. He had to wait 17 years before the dreams came true, and that included slavery and prison. Have you ever factored in that you obeying God might be prison? I don't think Joseph did either. Or King David. He was promised the kingdom and then... Not only was it not given to him for 14 years, but he had to run around in the desert barely escaping with his life. It didn't look like God's will was too secure of a thing half the time. And yet, God brought it about. Anyone, here's what I want to suggest. Our faith gets tested the same way. 
as the way Ruth's face gets tested. And it's tested by timing. Not our timing, but God's timing. And anyone in the school of holiness and sanctification is going to run into this test. If you take it seriously, Jesus, I want to follow you, you're going to run into this test. What's at stake here? Well, with Boaz's statement that there's another and closer redeemer, Ruth, as I said, has just lost control of the process. It's no longer under her control, but now under the sovereign hand of God. God gives a promise, and then life seems to kill the promise. And then out of the impossible circumstances, God resurrects the promise and fulfills the promise so that the greatness and glory belong to him and not to us. So we can prove that God is among us and that God is great. How about you this morning? Could I ask a couple questions? I don't know where you are, but as I've been talking, these would fit. Are you tired of waiting? How long have some of you waited for the Lord? Are you tired? I'm looking at Peter and Chris. Like, oh, gosh. How long have you waited? Are you giving up on waiting? Have you grown impatient or even worse, cynical? Right? You ever ranted at the Lord with cynicism because he's dragging his feet? Are you being steadfast or are you giving up? What faith steps has God asked of you that have become, through some major obstacle, hard to hold on to? Those are great questions for us to process. All right, let's go on to another step here. God's provision. Goes, the story goes on. So she lay at his feet until morning, but rose, arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Boaz, to her, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. In other words, don't talk about it. And, she, and he said, bring the garment you are wearing, hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. So... Ruth and Boaz ponder through the night watches what the possibilities and potentials are. She leaves pre-dawn before anyone could recognize, so dark, it's probably four or five in the morning when she takes off. Boaz also offers provision, six measures of barley. That's a lot. That's six big scoops, okay? So think of how much that would be. That's a lot. You can last on that for a long time. And what that tells us is that not, it tells us not only Ruth of his intentions, He's speaking his intent, but he's also sending a signal to Naomi. Boaz is sending a signal. I've, I've heard you. I've sent this as provision while we wait. It's also interesting, the picture of God providing for us while we wait. Uh, I know all kinds of stories of people who uh, God asked them to do something and take a step of faith, and they looked at their budget and said, uh, there's no way to do this. We can't, it's not going to work. We don't have the money. And they go back over the numbers and back over the numbers and they can't make it work. But they decide to follow through. And a year later, they'll look back and they'll tell you, okay, we don't know how this worked. But we paid the bills. We actually have some extra money. And the numbers still don't work. We don't know how God did that. We don't know how that, but we, he obviously did that because we're here. God often provides supernaturally during faith steps in ways that otherwise he wouldn't provide. And the only way you ever get to see him do that is if you take the step of faith. 
If you sit back and play it safe and just sit back and go, okay, I'm just going to be Joe Christian, I'm going to just or Sally Christian, I'm just going to sit in the chair and uh, I don't want to take any risk. I just want to be careful and comfortable and safe. If you do that, the odds are highly likely you'll never see the Lord do anything miraculous. But if you take that step of faith, you will see God provide miraculously in circumstances where otherwise you'd have never seen it. And that's what Boaz is signaling uh, here to Ruth. He's providing during the wait. And then the issue of surrendered trust. It says, when she came to her mother-in-law, this is Ruth approaching Naomi, Naomi said, how did you fare, my daughter? And I was, how'd it go? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And then Naomi replied, she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. One of the strong things this gives us is insight into uh, is that Boaz cared a great deal for Naomi as well. How his cousin, uh, how he felt about her, and he, he knew she was part of the deal. And he was saying, I'm going to take care of you. Uh, he was sending that signal with the barley. Uh, we don't know. She may have been one of his favorite cousins growing up, right? And as he watched her life, you know how you get older and suddenly you watch your family or cousins go through tough things. He probably watched her circumstances and he had a wish to soften the blows that had come her way. Um, He may have also sent the barley to Naomi seeking her approval, right? He's not talked to Naomi. He's not asked for her hand in marriage. So he may have sent it seeking her approval. Um, Naomi knows what's going on. And so she says to Ruth, she gives Ruth some really wise counsel Wait, wait. Let's see how this all turns out because we'll know before the end of the day. Have you ever wanted to bolt before the end of the deal instead of waiting? Have you ever had a hard time just waiting to see how it's going to turn out? Right? How are you doing? Fine. Right? But inside you're like, ah, this is scary. Right? That's an interesting question for us. When God asks us to take a step of faith, are we willing to wait for his provision and timing? Do we pray while we're waiting? Or do we worry? Do we trust while we're, while we're asked to wait? I want to suggest these questions are as real for us today as they were for Ruth and Boaz. As the old hymn says, Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to what? Trust and obey. That is as true for Ruth and Boaz as it is for us today. What in your world right now requires you to trust and obey? What's the faith step that you have to say to the Lord, all that you say, I will do? If we identify that, it's a pretty cool morning. All right, let's pray. Father, as we walk through this story, I don't think this story is idle chatter. I think it's a brilliant story, Lord. Um, Really well written. Incredible depths in it. And captures our attention because we can relate to it 6,000 years later. It's amazing. As you've used that story all through history, you use it uh, in Jewish festivals, Lord, so that people could see the role of kinsman redeemer and point them towards Jesus. You use that story in our life as well. The question would be, what's the faith step? Where are we uh, when you ask us to do something? Are we saying all that you ask, I will do? 
Maybe we've stalled. Maybe we've hiccuped. This is a great morning to come back to that. And like Ruth, to demonstrate incredible faith and incredible submission. You are the king. We are the servants. May we do all that you've asked us to do. We ask this in your name. Amen.